I have just finished exploring an absolutely amazing book that one review called a relentless thriller. I can't think of two better words to describe the amazing new novel called Animal, which is uh, a product of the collaboration of Keith DiCandido and my morning show guest, Dr. Munish Batra. Animal uh, surrounds the efforts over the course of many, many years of a vigilante who is determined to avenge the abuse of animals. And by uh, doing to the perpetrators of such abuse what they themselves have done to animals. Uh, it's a really incredible book. And I say it also as someone who does not necessarily gravitate to such works, uh, but it <laughs> gripped me uh, from start to finish. And uh, so fans of thrillers for sure will appreciate this book. But uh, even if you aren't necessarily a fan of, of such a genre, I have a feeling you may find this book to be tremendously compelling, as is the story of its co-author, Dr. Munish Batra, who has done uh, extensive work as a plastic surgeon, and that work has taken him all around the world as a volunteer as well. And uh, he's going to explain how, uh, in some of those travels around the world, he came to a new understanding and appreciation and deeper concern for issues related to uh, animal abuse, cruelty towards animals. And uh, that is part of what uh, undergirds this uh, incredible book, again, called Animal, published by Word Fire Press, which, by the way, has been optioned into a film that uh, we very likely will be seeing someday, and uh, I look forward to that as well. Dr. Munish Batra, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on and also uh, for bringing some uh, visibility to this uh, topic. Very good. Ahead of us talking about the book, I wonder if you would mind taking just a couple of minutes to talk about the discipline in which you have practiced medicine, uh, namely that of plastic surgery. Uh, I hope you won't mind my saying that I think a fair swath of the public often tends to think of plastic surgery and the work of plastic surgeons like yourself uh, in, in a way that is not representative of the most important work that you do. I think we mostly think about aging starlets wanting facelifts and that sort of thing, uh, when in fact the heart and soul of what you do is so much more important than that. Uh, first of all, tell us what, if anything, drew you uh, to become a plastic surgeon in the first place, to pursue medicine in this particular arena? Uh, so that's a pretty easy question to answer. If you look at my background, I'm an Indian immigrant. Uh, you know, I was uh, seven years old when I came to the United States. My parents uh, both grew up in a very impoverished environment in a village in India, as did me and my siblings. And we came to the U.S. for opportunity. My father was recruited here because of a brain drain that had uh, gone on in India when they recruited a lot of Indian engineers to the U.S. And he made it clear that education was going to be the, the stalwart of our, uh, of our evolution here in the uh, United States. I actually wanted to, wanted to be a writer. I went to Ohio State University with all the 
uh, inclination of becoming a, a writer because I really loved English literature. I loved historical literature. And my parents put a quash on that. They said, you know, uh, you need to do either become a doctor or an engineer. And so uh, in that respect, I, uh, I didn't have much autonomy. So I went into medicine, uh, followed my brother's footsteps. And within medicine, I came to realize that I really had the ilk in the surgical specialties. Uh, I am uh, I'm somebody who likes to, you know, get the job done and, and see the outcome. And within the surgical specialties, I, I was a trauma surgeon for a period of time uh, in my general surgery training program uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's some of the stuff you see in the book are, are those experiences uh, as a trauma surgeon. But then... I realized for me to really explore the diversity in the surgical specialties that plastic surgery would be the right thing for me. So I ended up coming to San Diego to train in plastic surgery. And after that, I did a year of what's called craniofacial surgery, which is basically reconstructing the face after traumatic injuries and had for a period of time taken care of a number of the uh, soldiers that came back from uh, uh, the war and were injured and did some reconstruction of the face. And some of that is embedded in the novel as well. So uh, a lot of my experiences in medicine and as a surgeon are really embedded in this novel, and that's what I think, you know, you alluded to the fact that you felt it was gripping. I think that's the feedback we've been getting is that it seems very realistic, and the reason is that it all comes from some of the nonfiction elements uh, of my surgical training. Hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, your work as a plastic surgeon has not just been done within the comforts of your own practice and medical office, wherever that may be, but that you have also taken your expertise all over the world. Uh, I wonder if we could just talk about this for a moment, and then we'll draw in the specifics of your novel. But even apart from that specific connection, I'm very, very interested to hear uh, about... Uh, First of all, what what that general inclination is all about. Why is it that you felt uh, such a, a strong compulsion uh, to to do this kind of work, plastic surgery, uh, all over the world, and especially uh, sometimes in the wake of, of natural disasters? Yeah, so one of the things that plastic surgery lends itself to is uh, reconstructive surgeries, that can be done in an outpatient fashion. So we don't have to have a hospital to go to. We can set up clinics and tents, basically, to do some of this reconstructive work. And early on in my career, being from India, being from a, a what I would call a very modest background, I realized there were people all over the world that were shunned either because of a congenital birth deformity or... Uh, and some of the work I do, for example, women who have acid thrown on them where they get third-degree burns and then they're shunned by their own family uh, because they may not have been able to uh, have enough money for a dowry or they may have done something that got, you know, led to this domestic uh, uh, abuse that was not warranted. And I realized that these people are shunned all over the world. And initially, I started my humanitarian missions to Mexico and South America. And ultimately, 
it gravitated towards India and Nepal and those areas. And the reason is there's a lot less access there for surgeons like myself and a group of surgeons that I travel with called uh, the American Society of Indian Plastic Surgeons. So my goal was let's try to make these people's lives better. Maybe it's a three- or four-hour operation to fix a birth deformity or take a person who's severely burned and reconstruct them, but then the rest of their life they'll get better. So when the tsunami happened, I went to the south coast of India and did some reconstructive work there. And then when the Nepal earthquake happened, me and a group of surgeons traveled to Nepal uh, to do some reconstructive work there. And But all along in between these disaster uh, zones, we've been going back and forth to India, uh, Nepal, and, uh, uh, you know, some of the surgeons travel to the Philippines to try to get access to, uh, you know, give access to people who would otherwise never have access to our type of specialty. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's really lended itself to uh, the fact of the matter is if you're a heart surgeon, you can't go and open up a field hospital and do heart surgery on a patient. Uh, the, the kind of surgeries that lend themselves to what we do are like cataract surgery, uh, plastic surgery, because we could do all this under local anesthesia, basically in a tent, uh, as long as the patient's willing to tolerate it. Mm. I, I, I wanted to ask you just how difficult it is uh, to do this kind of work under what I would assume would be less than optimal circumstances. Uh, particularly when we're talking about perhaps a, a third world country or a country that is reeling from the effects of an earthquake or a tsunami or, or whatever it, it might be. Uh, but it's interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is for as complex as plastic surgery is, there are also things about it that make it doable uh, even uh, under these kind of less than ideal circumstances. Yes, I, uh, I would agree with you that uh, what we do now, that doesn't mean that all cases that come can be treated. We had a, a patient whose face had been bitten off uh, by an animal, and we couldn't reconstruct that face under that kind of, uh, you know, it was a four-year-old child who basically came and he looked like a skeleton because uh, all the, the muscles and, and skin had been torn off by an animal attack, and there wasn't a lot we could do. But then there's, you know, the 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 patient with a snake bite that has dead tissue that we could remove the dead tissue and reconstruct it or the, the baby born with a cleft lip that we can, you know, uh, treat that baby in, in this type of an environment. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Munish Batra, who is a, a renowned plastic surgeon, uh, but also now uh, a very successful author and uh, has co-written with Keith uh, DeCandido uh, an amazing thriller called Animal. And uh, that's what we're going to begin talking about more specifically. Uh, ahead of us actually unfolding the, or unwrapping the story of the novel itself, I think it's important for us to hear a little bit about uh, a world, real-world experience that you had during one of these uh, humanitarian trips as a surgeon overseas uh, in which you witnessed uh, a kind of, of cruelty towards animals that you had uh, certainly never seen in this, in this country. Uh, describe uh, the circumstances under which uh, you saw what you saw. 
So I was in China, and part of the reason I had gone there was to visit a colleague and also to look at uh, opportunities that would lend itself to a mission there. And I had gone to Shanghai, and during one of my uh, afternoons that you know I had some downtime, I was walking and uh, just decided to take a walk and ended up somewhere in a backstreet marketplace with, you know, uh, dozens of stalls. And one of the things that I noticed, and it caught me off guard because you you really wouldn't, you couldn't put it into context, but there were carcasses of dogs hanging uh, that were skinned. And it, even as a plastic surgeon and a guy who's seen thousands of traumas, it it was horrifying to me. Part of it was I reflected on my own dog at home and realized that if someone had harmed my dog or done this to my dog, that it would leave a, a, a significant impact in my life. Uh, so that visual memory stuck with me, and it still sticks with me to this day. Uh, when I came back to the United States, uh, at the time there was uh, a show playing on CNN called Blackfish, and it made me realize that what I saw in China was very stark, but even in this country, uh, we don't we abuse animals, and it's not it doesn't really come to light because it's an uncomfortable thing for people to come to terms with. And that was part of the genesis for this novel: is who's going to speak up for these uh, sentient beings that have uh, the capacity to feel pain, that have the capacity to sense fear, that have consciousness. I mean, anyone of us who has a pet dog realizes that dog loves us and we love that animal. And who's going to stand up for these uh, animals and treat them in a humane manner? And that's what really led to the genesis of this novel. Hmm. How much had this been uh, a personal concern for you personally uh, before this? Uh, I mean, was it you know one of those one of probably a number of concerns that you have, but in a sense on the back burner, and then did this bring it uh, to the front, or is this something you have cared about for for quite some time, even before the the kind of the issues or, or experiences that you just related? So that that's an interesting question because my evolution into this has been more recent, probably in the last eight to ten years. Uh, growing up in inner city uh, Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I grew up, we didn't think about these things. And, you know, uh, I I was basically a little Indian kid in a, in a neighborhood with a bunch of black kids, and I was just thinking about surviving. Uh, it wasn't until uh, that trip and the fact that uh, my son was just born at the time, and my wife decided listen, uh, you need to get a sense of how to be patient. Uh, she had grown up around animals. I never did. And so we got a puppy, uh, which is my dog, uh, Layla. And I just realized, as, as, you know, this puppy isn't going to do what I tell it to do like the nurses in the operating room. Like, you know, I, I had to come to terms with the fact that this was something that wasn't going to bend to my rules as a surgeon. And I think what happened is it developed this evolution in me 
that I had to become more patient, more understanding uh, uh, of animals. But more importantly, as my son, uh, and I don't know where he picked this up, but he's uh, almost eight years old now. As he grew, he started, uh, he he was a very big animal lover. And I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was from our pet dog, but he doesn't eat meat. He is a very smart little kid. And he would ask me very deep philosophical questions like, you know what? Why? Uh, why do we do this to animals? Are ele- elephants going to be extinct? Uh, uh, and and these were things I'd never thought about until it was brought to light by my son, and those circumstances of me having my own pet dog, and that evolution has been the last eight to ten years. Hmm. I want to return back for the moment to uh, something you mentioned early on, which is that when you went to college at least initially your hopes and dreams were to become a writer but then for various reasons uh that dream was in a sense supplanted by another and you of course became a surgeon but uh my understanding is that writing has remained important to you even though it has not been your your vocation for uh, for all of these years uh ahead of you writing this novel had you done any of that kind of serious writing before? That is, have you ever taken the time in your free time to try to write a novel or, or other fiction or nonfiction for that matter? I mean, what kind of writing have you done before you sat down to begin writing what became Animal? So I, uh, I've always uh, had an interest in writing and I've actually journaled for many years, even as a trauma surgeon, I uh, penned stories, uh, nonfiction stories, uh, which impacted my growth as a surgeon. And and that uh, set of essays is actually being uh, put together into a book right now called Medical Madness. And that actually has to do with some of the things we faced as surgeons in training, which shows a little bit of the dark side of medicine uh, and how it impacts uh, uh a medical student and training to what they become later in life and what impacts it's had on me as a surgeon. So I've always written some nonfiction essays. And in fact, one of the essays that I wrote, I think it was in the uh, late 1980s, uh, was accepted as uh, the uh, best nonfiction writing by the Medical Economics Journal. And they gave me a trip around the world. So uh, I, I had a little bit of sense of, okay, if I can write and I can write well, people will be interested in it. And uh, the fact that I was awarded a trip around the world was a great outcome showing that my writing was uh, appreciated. So the, the novels that I've been working on, Animal is the first one, but I've got four other novels that I'm currently working on, which are all dystopian medical novels. Uh, one has to do with the new CRISPR technology and gene editing and how that's going to, and it's a story about uh, an individual who, uh, you know, the CRISPR technology is applied to. And it just shows that we don't completely in medicine have the answers before we start implementing certain technologies and certain uh, uh, changes in the human genome and what the potential outcomes can be. Uh, that novel has been described by some people uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood industry as being very impactful, like a Michael Crichton-type novel. 
Uh, that's called Pigman. And then uh, there's another novel that I'm working on called Stem Cells, which has to do with stem cell transplantation into the brain. And uh, another novel uh, called Unknown, which has to do with uh, uh, surrogacy. So these are all, they're all based to some degree in medicine. Even animal has medical elements in it. And, uh, you know, that's what I know well. Uh, I'm a surgeon. I'm a physician. I understand that. So I can bring a sense of realism to it. But this dates back to even my days in college where I had an interest in writing and I've continued to pursue that. In fact, one of the things I wrote, which has been picked up by uh, a company called Weird Tales, was a, a novel called The Prophet, or it's a story called The Prophets of Shiva. And it actually uh, talked about the potential implications of uh, a global virus. And that was written in 2017 before COVID ever came to be. And that's been republished now by Weird Tales because uh, it eerily uh, uh, parallels what's going on with COVID right now. Hmm. Tell me about the collaboration between you and Keith De Candido, uh, your co-author for this new thriller called Animal. How did the two of you hook up and what kind of a collaboration was this? What, in what way did you sort of share the duties or uh, share in the task of shaping this uh, amazing book? Yeah, so Keith has been very instrumental in my growth uh, as a writer. Uh, I had put the whole story together for Animal, and I had created something called a, uh, a treatment. And a treatment is basically a synopsis of what you would like to see if you were going to make a movie out of this. So I had this 25-page treatment that I had uh, uh, been in contact with the uh, with Tony Eldridge, who's the producer of the two Equalizer movies, uh, with Denzel Washington, and he found it very compelling. He said, "You really need to sit down and turn this treatment into a book." And having never written a book and not knowing how uh, taskful that is, I attended a. Uh, a writing seminar with Jonathan Mayberry, who is a well-known uh, New York Times bestselling writer. And Jonathan really liked the, uh, what I would call the, the, the topic, as well as some of the stuff I'd written in the past. And he said, let me introduce you to a guy uh, named Keith DeCandido who can help you th- through with this. And that's how the collaboration started. So I, I produced the story, and then Keith did his magic in terms of really bringing in the police procedurals because that's his area of expertise. He brought in the police procedurals and we collaborated. We went back and forth every chapter. Hey, Keith, I I think this should be done differently. Or Keith would say, well, no, this doesn't flow with this. And he's really been very uh, educational and instrumental in me developing uh, the idea of how to conduct a storyline, but also how, at least in this novel, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a very factual person. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, uh, like to try to explain things. And he said, no, you can't do that. In, in this kind of a genre, you have to leave certain things unexplained. You have to, uh, have a, uh, something at the, to lead the, the reader all the way to the end of the novel. So that's been, uh, our collaboration together. And if you ever get an opportunity to read some of Keith's stuff, uh, it's very well written, and so I've been really fortunate to have someone like him as a mentor. Hmm. 
There are a couple of very, very interesting points about this story and the way that it is shaped that, that I want to, uh, to talk about. And of course, at the heart of it is this intriguing question around this vigilante that is avenging abused animals. And sort of an, I guess it, it's an ethical question, which is uh, when someone is doing truly horrific things that just about everyone agrees are horrific, even if the person doing those deeds doesn't quite see it, uh, is how, how much uh, action against such individuals is, is justified uh, morally, ethically, legally, and so on. Tell us more about this central question or issue and uh, the kind of conversations maybe that you and your co-author had or that you sort of uh, pondered in your, own, in your own mind. Because I really think so much of the novel turns on this question. Yeah, so I think uh, the intent of this novel is not to kind of promote vigilantism. I think both of us went into this with the thought that let's bring to light some of the animal cruelty and, uh, you know, give people the, a chance to explore their own humanity. Uh, the end result is, of course, you know, what happens when someone who's such so impacted by this that they go to the other end of the spectrum, and that's why it became a, a, a vigilante novel. One of the things Raymond Benson uh, pointed out, he's the author of the James Bond novels, is, you know, is homicide or violence justified uh, when you're protecting the innocent? And that's the question we're trying to bring to light here is, uh, you know, how much uh, are we willing to step up and really uh, protect the innocent, which are animals in this case? Uh, we're not pushing for violence by any means. Uh, I'm not a rabid animal activist by any means. I just took that thought process and took it to the other end of the spectrum because there are going to be people out there who feel very strongly about this topic, much more than, uh, you know, strongly than I, uh, I am in the sense, for example, when Cecil the lion was killed by that dentist, the, the you know, people in the U.S. were... In, in a fervor, and this dentist uh, actually lost his practice because he had threats. Uh, when uh, we see images of a, a rare wild giraffe being killed for, you know, trophy hunting, or we see elephants being poached for their ivory and tusks, I think all of us have this visceral unease with what we're doing to this planet and what we're doing to animals. Uh, and this book is meant to bring that out. And the book uh, has, it, it's disturbing. I, I mean, it, it, people who have read it uh, recognize there's some disturbing elements to it, but it's disturbing because these are nonfiction elements of the book. This is what we have done uh, as human beings. We've exploited these creatures for our own purposes and it, and should we really be doing that just because we have the power to do it? What if humans were subjected 
did this kind of a thing. And that's what this vigilante points out. If you're going to detusk an elephant, this vigilante goes in and he takes your midface out. And if you're going to skin a tiger for their pelt, he skins the, the poachers like they've done to the tiger. So uh, back home, you know, there's dogfighting rings in the U.S. What does he do? He chains the, the dogfighting people uh, along uh, in, in the ring with the dog. So we, I wanted to bring to light, this is how it feels to them, so let's try to recognize what we're doing. Right. And, of course, you're, you're taking us, in a sense, uh, inside the mind of someone who is so horrified uh, by this kind of animal abuse uh, that he is willing to do something about it, I mean, to an extent that, uh, that the rest of us couldn't even contemplate, uh, let alone actually execute or, or, or manage to, to, to accomplish. Uh, what kind of research was involved in uh, creating the sort of the backdrop for much of what unfolds in the novel? For instance, when it comes to something like the harvesting of elephant tusks, for this, for, for for the ivory, uh, I mean, you 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 take us to such a place where that is is going on. Is that something? I assume it's something you did not know a whole lot about uh, before you began writing this novel. Uh, I did not. I, uh, I put in a lot of research uh, along with the you know the elephant poaching uh, into every facet of the animal abuse that occurs. For example, the uh, where we talk about the the killer whale episode where the baby orcas uh, uh, were captured. You know, it's historical fact that when they captured the baby orcas and they knew that they couldn't use them, they basically slaughtered them and put rocks inside their body so that they would uh, go to the bottom of the ocean, uh, only, to, you know, except that they resurface. Uh, when we go into the... Uh, what happens with the elephant poachers. These are actual stories uh, and data that Keith and I had worked on and done research on to bring that story to life. Uh, The gorilla hands, that's something that's very, you know, people use gorilla hands as ashtrays around that part of the world from, you know, killing these uh, you know, magnificent beings and then using their hands as ashtrays. That's well documented. Uh, even the stuff, you know, the animal fighting rings that we have in the U.S. Uh, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, every part of this book in terms of the animal abuse was something that we researched and brought to life into the story. Another aspect of this book that intrigues me very much that I was anxious to ask you about is that, for instance, when we are on the scene of elephant tusks being harvested for the ivory, the people that you have doing that in this particular instance are not necessarily evil monsters. I mean, the way that we might, you know, in our heads when we're kind of thinking about this in the abstract would probably be inclined to, 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 to paint them that way. I mean, as, as absolutely sadistic, hideous monsters, scarcely human 
because they would be willing to do such a, a, a terrible thing to animals. And I think what you have done instead is uh, constructed at least some of these people engaged in this as, as not evil monsters, uh, even if you or, or we might think that what they're doing is monstrous. <laughs> Can you talk for a moment ab- about that and uh, to what extent I am being correct in characterizing the way you have shaped some of these, let's say, more unsavory characters in your novel? So, uh, once again, this partly has to do with my travels uh, around the world, but I've actually met some of these types of people in my travels. And you realize that some of the people doing this are actually just trying to survive. You know, uh, a, a rhino horn can bring in enough money to feed a village for, you know, three months. So I realize that people are just trying to survive. Uh, I, I realize that animals are taken advantage of because of the necessity for these people to survive. And they're not necessarily evil people, but they're just trying to live. And what I wanted to do was paint that picture uh, in a very realistic fashion that there are people that are cruel. Uh, there are people that are uh, sadistic. But by and large, some of this is survival also. And nowadays, if you look at what's going on with uh, ivory trade, it's actually run by terrorist organizations. It's run by ISIS. It's run by al-Qaeda. And the reason is that ivory trade, they, you know, send these guys out with machine guns who are actually very sadistic, and they're not doing it to survive, but they're trying to raise money to fund their own terrorist activities. So part of this is trying to illuminate that there's a whole spectrum of people involved in this kind of uh, uh, activity. It's uh, people who are from small villages that realize that I have to feed my family to people on the other end of the spectrum that are terrorist organizations. And what I wanted to do was paint a very realistic picture so that uh, regardless whether it's, you know, uh, the person in the village. Uh, What we want to do is say, let's find some other avenue for these people to be able to live and make money and survive. Uh, So nowadays organizations are are cropping up, which do exactly that. They're teaching them, okay, don't go out and kill these elephants. We're going to teach you how to farm. We're going to fund this activity so that you can survive. So I, I think that's coming more and more into uh, the uh, uh, popular uh, mainstream is to uh, help these people so they don't have to go out and kill animals and, and do destructive things to, to our planet. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Munish Batra, who is co-author with Keith DiCandido of, of a new thriller, and an amazing thriller it is, called animal. At the heart of this story uh, is a mysterious vigilante who is actually traveling over the world, around the world, uh, to avenge what he sees as the innocent victims of animal abuse by, uh, in a sense, preying on those uh, abusers and inflicting on them 
some version of the abuse which which they have uh, inflicted on on animals. The novel also uh, involves the efforts of a couple of different investigators uh, who are find themselves drawn into this pursuit, and uh, primarily two investigators from two very different parts of the world and and who operate, in a sense, within two very different systems. Uh, tell our listeners ab- about uh, these two detectives, Michelle Halls and An Chang, and uh, why the novel is constructed in this way with these two uh, investigators trying to work together. So I wanted uh, to convey that this is a global problem, and to do that, we wanted to have uh, sort of a global reach uh, with the investigation. So when you read the novel, you realize that these uh, uh, revenge or vigilantism has been going on for two decades. And it started where our vigilante uh, was actually a, a child of an American ambassador in China. And, uh, that's where uh, the, you know, his dog has been uh, accosted and he watches his dog get uh, uh, murdered. And that's what turns him into this vigilante type uh, individual. And what he comes to realize is that he's not going to be able to stop the, the, villagers who are poaching elephants necessarily because they need to live. So what he, what does he need to do? He needs to go to the end uh, marketing person, which is the ivory trade, and have an impact on those people, the people who are buying this. So that's what lands him into California in San Francisco because there's Chinatown and big ivory trade out there. So it brings him into the U.S., and that's where... Uh, this uh, novel really starts is in California, and it, we team up basically a small-town California detective, Michelle Halls, who otherwise has never seen anything like this. And once uh, she puts out on uh, the alert to other police forces about what she has seen uh on a video about how this uh, vigilante had killed two people, that gets transmitted back to the people who are trying to chase this guy in China, and that's what brings An Chang from China into California to team up with Michelle Hall because An Chang has been trying to track this guy for the last 20 years. Right. And I think part of what's really interesting is that these two detectives are very different from each other. Their means of operating are very different from each other. They work for very different entities. And, uh, and they also each bring their own sort of personal baggage, uh, which makes all of this even a little more complicated. And, of course, for you as the novelist, it also makes it a little more interesting. Uh, I, I agree with you 100%. And that's where I think Keith is really uh, a superstar in this, uh, arena, I, I had in mind certain facets of these characters, but he really brought them to life. And I, I really love what he's done with the baggage that you're talking about, 
and the interaction of the two. That, in a way, it reminds me of my interaction first coming to the United States as an Indian immigrant and being thrown in the inner city with a bunch of inner city uh, kids and trying to make my way. And that's kind of what An Chang is doing, is trying to make his way in, in our society. Hmm. Another thing that I think is uh, a commendable part of all this is that, uh, particularly in the mind of, of Michelle Halls, we, we get a sense of the enormous tedium that is part of the work of a detective. In stark contrast to the typical way in which the work of detectives tends to be depicted uh, uh, on the screen in television and film and, and, and so on. And I think it's interesting because it's, it's not easy to acknowledge that uh, in a way that doesn't you know, make the book <laughs> t- tedious itself. I mean, if, if we were treated to the tedium in real time of what detective work is, then uh, it's probably a book none of us would want to read. It's probably a book you wouldn't want to write. And yet, I think you guys have done a really great job of kind of introducing that element and making us aware that uh, even though it tends not to show up in Hollywood scripts, this is a reality for anybody who is a detective, particularly working on an especially difficult case. I have to say that that's how surgery and medicine is depicted in Hollywood versus what it is in real life. So when you watch the frenetic pace of ER, uh, you think that's what emergency rooms are. Uh, but in real life, you know, being a trauma surgeon or being a, a reconstructive surgeon means you're sitting around a lot of the day going through charts until you get that phone call that you have to run in and reconstruct a face from a gunshot wound. Or, uh, you know, when I was a trauma surgeon, we, we'd sit there uh, playing uh, uh, video games uh, on the TV monitor until you get the trauma page that says, okay, you've got, you know, uh, uh, mass casualties coming in. So it's, it's either high-paced or it's tedious. And uh, the time in between, you're filling out paperwork, you're finishing up chart notes and things like that. And, and Hollywood's done a great job of, of keeping that out because if, if, you, if, that was, if you showed 90% of the time that that's what's going on, no one's going to watch that show. <laughs> right, and probably no one would want to become a doctor <laughs> if, right. if they knew that was such a, 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 a part of it, <laughs> or a detective. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there is nothing tedious about this uh, incredible book. It it really is, as I said at the outset, in the words of a of one reviewer, a relentless thriller. It is a, a fascinating concept that uh, brings up a, a very, very important issue and uh gets us really thinking about this. Uh, a last question. I mentioned also at some point in the interview that your novel has been optioned uh, uh, to be made into a film. I wonder what that feels like for you as the novelist. And if you uh, think about that with kind of a, a mix of emotions, I mean, excitement maybe mixed with a bit of trepidation. So I... I would say there's really, in my mind, there's no trepidation. So I'll put that out there. I, I would love to see this on the screen. The uh, issue really is taking a novel and putting it on the screen. Uh, there's a huge 
uh, gap in between being able to do that. The fact that it's been optioned by a well-known producer uh, is great news. But I can tell you, uh, there's, you know, as time goes by, uh, it's not like surgery. When I get done with a case, I see the result on the table. Uh, this has taken years, and uh, I still have to kind of, uh, uh, you know, bridle my impatience uh, and would love to see this on the screen. I, I, in my mind, have certain characters. I would love to see Joaquin Phoenix. He's a big animal activist hmm. uh, involved in this. Uh, I would love to see, you know, certain uh, characters being filled by uh, certain cast members. But really what it boils down to is, uh, which uh, Tony Eldridge uh, pointed out, he said, this is not a big studio film. This is not a politically correct film. This is not something that Universal or Paramount's going to be interested in because it's such a hot topic. He said, this is an independent film and we have to go out and look for funding and uh, uh, raise money and do it uh, knowing that there are so many animal lovers in the U.S. that would, you know, would have this sort of guilty pleasure of watching uh, people do this to people who, uh, you know, commit these atrocities against animals. But this isn't something that's politically correct. Well, it will be interesting to see if this does indeed see the light of day on the screen. And we do want to also mention that you have uh, decided to donate a sizable portion of the proceeds uh, to the Humane Society uh, and to some other groups that are working on behalf of animal safety and uh, animal welfare. So it sounds like this continues to be a very, very important uh, issue and concern for you personally. It, it is an important issue and concern, and it's, as I mentioned earlier, been an evolution for me. Uh, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I have a, you know, great plastic surgery practice. You know, we talk about reconstructive surgery. Plastic surgery is kind of a Robin Hood specialty, right? I make my money doing the cosmetic stuff, so I have the time to be able to write novels and not worry about making a living or time to uh, do reconstructive humanitarian missions and not worry about being paid for those things because I make my money doing something else. So I've been really blessed, and uh, you're right. We're giving the money, the profits of this to the Humane Society because we want to really put our money where our, our mouth is and say, listen, if we think this is an important topic, let's do something to to convey that and to protect these creatures. So, uh, you know, when, whenever if, if people enjoy the book or they buy it, uh, you know, it's going to be for a good cause. Mm. The book, again, is titled Animal. It is published by Wordfire Press and one of its authors, Dr. Munish Batra. Dr. Batra, I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you uh, about your fascinating and exciting book. Thank you so much and best wishes to you. Thank you for your time, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity.